Well, hello, and welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast. I am John O'Leary, and I'm so happy to share with you stories that empower you to do, to be, to achieve, and to impact more through your life. Maybe more simply said, I'm fired up to share with you stories that help you live inspired. After today's episode, I'd love to hear from you. Send me an email at podcast at johnolearyinspires.com with your feedback, maybe your guest suggestions for future shows, stories on how this podcast has helped you live more inspired, or questions that you have for me. Again, send that email to me at podcast at johnolearyinspires.com. And now, let's get started with today's episode. Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired Podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. Well, hello, my friends, and welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. Today's guest has led an epic life, and he's got an incredible tale to share. After serving in the Air Force and Desert Storm, Greg Matthews spent the next 27 years fulfilling his passion to help those who could not help themselves, including firefighting, rescue helicopter piloting, roles in anti-terrorism, and much more. Many would look up to him as one of a life of accomplishments, as a measure of significance and an impact through his lifetime. And Greg was incredibly driven to accomplish so much. But as you will hear during our interview, he was driven in some regards by all the wrong reasons, which he came to realize after an unlikely encounter with a relentless, angry, aggressive, get ready for this one, grizzly bear. I'm serious. You heard me right. Today's guest was attacked by a great grizzly bear and is here to share some of that experience. But my friends, this gruesome, nearly fatal conflict offered an unexpected encounter with God and an inflection point that completely changed Greg's life today. Greg joins us to share about his brand new book. It's called Wild Awakening. It captures that unlikely encounter, and it reminds all of us that in life, truly, the best is yet to come. I encourage you right now to buckle up. You'll need it for this ride. Open wide your minds, your hearts, grab a cup of coffee, open up that journal, take some notes as we introduce you to our newest friend. His name is Greg Matthews. Greg, welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary. Thank you, John, for having me, and this is an incredible privilege and honor. Your, uh, your story, it inspired me, and it's, it's just amazing. Thank you for having me. Well, man, you're living it in your own life, and as you and I talked right before we hit record, my story, if you will, my in, is about a can of gasoline exploding, and people think that's what I'll talk about, and they're wrong. Your story is about a grizzly bear attacking you and somehow surviving, and yet your story's about so much more than that. So I'm excited to share with our listeners about Wild Awakening, that experience, but what it really awoke within you. So uh, for those who don't really know your story, know your life, know your work today, Greg, tell us what you do professionally. Well, professionally, um, I've been, as you stated, uh, for 27 years 
I've been serving the public. I currently serve as the anti-terrorism officer for the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers for the entire Southwest Division, uh, centered in Texas and extending all the way around that. Basically, a task to protect all the dams, hydropower generation plants, and intercoastal uh, waterway locks. When you're not protecting and serving professionally, what do you like to do at home? What do you like to do for fun? Since the grizzly attack, I've kind of uh, changed my focus. I'm pouring myself a lot more into uh, my walk with the Lord and um, with my family, refocus. But what I enjoy doing in my off time is uh, I do a lot of hunting. I love bow hunting. And I also love uh, something that we have in common. I love baseball. Um, Yeah, baseball and hunting is uh, pretty much my life. And, And now with the book, it's, uh, it's reaching out to men and women and their families and everything. Well, man, I think baseball is a common thread that pulls many of us together. I think uh, kids, for many of us, pulls us together. Hunting, for some of us, pulls us together. But we all have this origin story. You know, we all, we all have this story, and uh, it all begins somewhere. For you, it doesn't really begin in Alaska with a great grizzly attack. It begins long before that. So I want you to take us way back to your childhood. Talk, talk about growing up. I grew up in, in San Diego, and my dad, uh, he was a, a Marine. He was a California Highway Patrolman for a full career and then worked in NCIS for a full career. And he was an amazing man, definitely an alpha male and someone to be looked up to. And, and I idolized him. He was my foundation. He was my hero. He was everything. And... Uh, where this all starts, and it's it's no fault of his own. We live in a broken world where broken decisions are made. Our family hadn't come to know the Lord at that point, and so my parents ended up making some decisions that they thought was best for the family, not realizing that an eight-year-old boy standing on the sidewalk after loading a bunch of boxes into my dad's car, not knowing uh, where or what those boxes were for, mm. Um, My dad walked around the car, and I looked at him, and he wasn't looking at us. All three of us boys, I have two brothers, were standing there waiting for that wink and a smile because we were racing to to help dad out and and bring these boxes out and get those boxes into the car wherever they were going. And uh, he walked around to the car with his head hung down. I just said, Dad? (laughs) And uh, he paused, and then he looked up, and he looked right at me, and he said, You know, we love you boys very, very much, and that'll never change, but I'm not going to be living at home anymore. And, you know, even though I'm still walking this out, it's still emotional to be able to just just talking about this because it's so, so vivid. Greg, I I, I read your book, man, and read about a great grizzly attack that we're going to be talking about here shortly and read about a couple lost relationships and struggles that you've had, big stuff. And for me, the most moving part of that entire book was reading about an eight-year-old boy wearing a white T-shirt with a couple of brothers around him, seeing his dad moving a box, and then just saying, like, little boys do who idolize their dad, and you clearly did. They just want to help him. They don't even know what they're doing, but they, they want to be first in line. And so you and your brothers are doing the very best you can to just help dad, and you have no clue. You're actually speeding up the fact that your father's moving away. I, I just, it's heartbreaking, man. And you had no idea what you were doing and you had no idea how this would change your life in the long run. And 
you're so articulate with your words and maybe I should have had you write this part because that's, that's exactly what, um, it just deeply impacted me and those to recall it all, the attack, all this stuff. It is the most difficult for me to talk about this because a little boy doesn't know how to process the fact that his dad is driving away and not knowing where it's going to go from there and watching, watching to see if he's going to turn around or Mm -hmm. even look. And, uh, and when he left my whole foundation of who I was, was, completely shattered. And, you know, my dad and I are best friends today. And I had to go to him and ask permission to write about this brokenness in our, in our family. And my dad is so brave and and knows that we were making decisions from a a broken place. And, uh, and we agreed that I should write this story, that it would help people to, to understand woundings and how they deeply impact people across the world. And so what I think the important piece here is when I, when he left and he was out of sight and he was gone and my brothers were crying and, and I, I I was thinking now I'm in charge. I I've got to pick myself up and, and be whatever it need. I need to be for my brothers and thinking about my mom and having to go back in that house. But I wrote something on my heart that was a lie straight from the pit of hell. Okay, and I'll tell you, I'm just going to be frank with you. It was a lie of the enemy. And what I wrote on my heart was, this is all your fault, and your dad doesn't love you anymore, and you were never good enough inside to even stick around for. And that's how an eight-year-old boy processes an event like that. The last thing I told myself is, if dads can leave, anybody can leave, and I will never, ever let anybody that close to me again to be able to hurt me like that mm. and prove to the world and my dad that there was something worthy in me, that there was something that was, was lovable, but I, I couldn't see anything lovable on the inside. Cause my, I just basically told myself that. So I had to polish the outside. I had to be love for what I did, which led to almost an embarrassing list of, yeah, achievements and accomplishments, sir. It reads, your resume reads incredibly, impeccably impressive. And yet in life, frequently what motivates us are, it comes from one of two sources, fear, which is one way to motivate. And it works in the short term, but not in the long term. And alternatively, love. And as I read through your long list of accomplishments and mistakes, What I was reading was a guy who was incredibly motivated from a place of not only a father wound, but from fear, ultimately fear of not being enough. And so trying to prove to the world, yes, I am. Watch what I do next. Watch how high I can climb. That's absolutely, that is true. It was insecurity. It was fear, but I never let anybody past seeing confidence, seeing I'm going to prove to you that I'm a man. I'm going to prove to you that I am worthy of respect. And you know what? A lot of, when you're in a place like that, there is a lot of relationships that you end up establishing along the way that they deeply pay for that mindset because whether it's counterparts at work Mm -hmm. and you're never, you're never enough and never secure in what you've done. And at times you've had to make others feel less than coming to grips with all of these things. There's a lot of shame involved with, with the same approach. 
I'm glad you brought up shame, and I'm also glad you brought up the relationships, the collateral damage of being fueled like you were. You join the Air Force, you have a wonderful career with them, and you meet seemingly a beautiful, incredible lady named Mary Jo. And then the story goes in a direction I wasn't expecting. So um, Mary Jo becomes your wife. She is longing and looking forward to having children with you. How do you feel about that? Well, first of all, you're right. She was a wonderful lady and was only desiring what any wife in love with her husband would desire, and that's to to bring kids into the world, to share that, that wonderful gift of life between two who make a, a bond before God. Unfortunately, I kept telling myself that that desire, that feeling when I know it's right as a man, then kids will come. But it, it never came. It never came. And finally, I was faced with her coming to me of desperation saying, when are we going to have kids? And then when I really had to explain to her why I couldn't, I began to see how deeply the wound from that eight-year-old boy standing on that sidewalk, how deeply it ran in me because I was convinced that I would transfer all of this pain, the stuff that I've kept hidden from everyone, that she didn't even have a clue mm-hmm. about how deep that pain was, that I would transfer it to my kids and they would wear this, this burden and this pain for the rest of their lives. And I was unwilling to do it. It didn't matter you could hand me a million dollars at that point, and I still was not going to bring kids into this world. I knew I, would, I could not be a good father. Well, it seems to me in life, what you look for, you find. And back then, you were certainly seeking proof of what you were already believing about yourself. And so in every job you took on, you would see even additional evidence that proved that this is not the right world to bring kids into. You saw it as a first responder. You saw it as an EMT. And then you get a call in September of, I think it's 2001, you're living in Washington. And uh, take our listeners back to that phone call and, and what happens next for you. On September 11th, 2001, I got a phone call from a good friend of mine. And his brother was one of my best friends. And what he said, I, of course, we had, just like everyone else, had seen the, the second plane fly into the towers and, and the, the country was reeling in pain and we were fearful. We didn't know what was going on. And Zach Fletcher called me and said that Andre, who is an FDNY firefighter assigned to rescue five, was missing in the collapse of the North Tower, that uh, Zach was being recalled on multiple alarms. They recalled the whole entire, as you can imagine, the whole entire FDNY. He said, I need you to come as soon as you can. And I said, well, I guarantee there's no planes flying. He says, just Please make the arrangements. I want you to come to work with my FDNY company. He was a firefighter for FDNY also. They were twins. And he says, I need you by my side, and I want you to work with my crew. We've got to find Andre. And uh, that uh, immediately, I had just come off shift, so I immediately started packing my bags. And so I arrived at uh, Ground Zero, what we call the pile, um, on September 15th and uh, began looking for amongst other things, looking for Andre, but we never found him. We never found anything, as you can imagine, as you've heard. Everything was pretty much pulverized in those collapses, so there was there was nothing whole to really find. Uh, there was a lot of, I'm not sure if your listeners know this, but 
the majority of the stuff that was found was was shoes with um, feet still in them. Mm. Greg, we all, whether we live in New York or Missouri or Washington where you lived, uh, or our listeners are coming in from more than 70 different countries, everyone was changed and influenced that day. And yet very few of us have such a personal recall of the aftermath as you. How did that day, how did working the pile, seeking your friends, working hand-in-hand with your brothers and sisters at Ground Zero change you afterwards? Well, what what I can tell you is there was um, there was an incident. Um, I was working on on a section of the pile, and uh, we were pulling out debris from the airplane and and looking for every time a, a first responder, any kind of piece of their turnout coat or anything was found. Uh, work would stop, and they'd bring the Stokes basket up. They'd take whatever they had found, they would put it in the basket, drape it with a flag, and then all of the first responders would turn as as it should have been. FDNY folks were the ones to carry their own off of that pile. And we would turn around and we'd salute when they came by, and then we would go back to work. Right after one of those incidents, I looked down, I saw three quarters of a piece of a $100 bill. Hmm. And that $100 bill was stained with some Americans' blood. And looking at, in God we trust, as a nation, we were all in, in a stage of, of what they call psychogenic shock, functioning, barely functioning, doing what we could. And I dropped to my knees in tears. And uh, I literally felt like I could hear the 3,000 people pulverized below me crying out. And it was similar to the pain of what was inside of me crying out, eight-year-old little boy. It significantly changed me that day because I knew I did not want to just respond anymore. I wanted to prevent. Once again, I wrote something in my heart, which was convoluted with achievement and trying to prove my purpose. But it seemed like I was born to try and keep people from, from pain and to protect them and serve them. And I felt I had failed in stopping that attack. Although I had nothing to do in being able to, at that point, stopping it, I felt like I had failed a, a nation. And and I got to tell you, from that point, I completely changed. I already mapped it out in my mind how I would retool and reschool. And from that point on, I was already envisioning being able to help secure some type of major metropolitan mm-hmm. uh, population against terrorists in the future. I I never, ever wanted our country to ever face like something like that again. It's something you have spent 15 years or so participating in, and we could spend the next four hours talking about that, truly. But I'm going to fast forward just a little bit through the journey to get to the inflection point in your story that you wrote about in Wild Awakening. After uh, 14 years or so of working after after September 11th, you and a brother decide to go on the hunting trip of a lifetime. I, I think it's a 10-day big game hunt with bows out to Alaska. Talk about what you were looking for. I can tell you that uh, my dad, you know, we, we did see him on weekends after he had ended up living, leaving the home. And he always carved out a week where we would we could go to the Sierra Nevadas and go shooting and go fishing and go camping 
he put in us the love of the outdoors and and we used to pour over of course we didn't have the internet at that time so we used to to get all these books from the library and we would pour over field and stream and outdoor life and sports of field and just live it vicariously through the magazines waiting for that week of 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 recreation with my dad in the outdoors and and we set our minds that one day we as three brothers would go on a big game hunt and so it just so happened that my my brother Matt who's a retired Air Force master sergeant retired in Alaska lived there for 12 years and he came up with finally the idea to fulfill that dream and to go 14 miles into uh, remote Alaska in the Kenai Peninsula area and to go on that big game hunt hunting moose bull moose with a bow and a chance to to challenge ourselves like we had always dreamed of. Well, you find a challenge that you weren't expecting. I would imagine all hunters have in the back of their minds some of the risks that they take on. Did you ever imagine in your wildest wildest dreams that you actually may have an encounter with a great grizzly? It's funny you should mention that. There was there was two years planning behind this hunt. And we considered everything. Part of my responsibility, we, we looked at our skill sets, and part of my responsibility based on my skill sets was to build a trauma kit with all the medications, whether you had an upset stomach or we were not going to let anything stand in the way of either having a successful hunt mm-hmm. or surviving to get back out of there. And so I built a, a trauma kit based on the fact, that, and a trauma kit for your listeners is It far surpasses your basic first aid kit. There's large dressings. There's large bandages. There's stuff that for massive bleeding that is, would kill you quicker than anything. Um, I prepared for that, but there was never ever a thought in my mind that I would have to treat myself or have my brother treat some massive uh, near fatal wounds never even considered, or that they would come from a grizzly. So it's September 22nd. It's 2015. You're four days into this experience of a lifetime. You're hunting the moose. Your brother's calling them in toward him, and you're kind of flanking it, you think. And yet it's not a moose, ultimately, you recognize that it's making its way towards your camp, but something more ominous. As you look back on that experience, um, I guess my first question is, who saw who first? Did the great grizzlies see Greg Matthews or did Greg see the bear? I saw the grizzly first and it was just, uh, moose are very, very slow. That's part of their protection and camouflage is you can be staring at what you think is a tree trunk and then all of a sudden you'll catch a flicker of an ear. And what I saw was some movement out of my periphery and not wanting to look at it because I, th- I have this feeling that when you look at it, they recognize you and I didn't want to spook them. Ended up drawing that bow back and swung and I saw that grizzly first and it still hadn't seen me. And when I saw that head swinging left to right, right to left in a very methodical way, I knew that thing was hunting me. In the book, you define this, but why not describe it here? You decide to drop the bow and... uh you had to decide in a flash, do I run? Do I hide? Do I attack? What do I do here? What was the answer that you came up with? Well, human nature says run and hide. <laughs> uh, that was You would have been behind me. You don't need to be faster than the bear. You just need to be faster than Greg Matthews if you and I are next to each other. I would have, I would have <laughs> been 
terrified, Greg. And so uh, I'm sure you were too, but you don't run. Tell our audience what you do. I quickly put, put down the bow and I grabbed the rifle. But what I will tell your listeners, the reason I made that decision is there was two trails and this, this bear, this eight and a half foot grizzly, 600 pounds, was at the confluence of these two trails. So it was a decision point of where that bear would go. If it went to the right, it would actually follow a trail right down to where my brother was. And so I knew that was an option. He wasn't expecting it. He had a moose call in his hands, not the rifle. And so I opted to confront. So I grabbed my rifle. I low crawled around the tree. I brought the rifle up, but I had been glassing the slopes of the two mountain ranges on either side. And so I had the magnification wound up. And I was shaking so bad and couldn't think that I couldn't wind it back to get a good shot. All I had was hair in the scope. And so I just brought the the rifle down to my hip, said a quick prayer, and then I said, whoa, bear. And that thing just locked eyes on me. From there, everything went bad really fast. So this bear begins charging you. Yes. It, uh, It looks like a pickup truck coming at me. It goes into slow motion. That bear was on me so fast. I shot it in the face. It didn't do anything. And before I knew it, the first bite when it pinned me on my back was to my face and exploded in blood. It ripped a hole about the size of a tennis ball in my throat and basically tore down from the center of my nose through my lip. Um, As it bit down, it split my face. I thought my face was gone. This bear, and you write about it, so rather than going into all the details on the podcast, this bear has its way with you for a while, man. And uh, eventually, the bear finally loosens its grip and its paw pressure with these long nails coming out of its paw because your brother. Talk about what your brother does once he hears that first shot and when he hears your screams. There was a multitude of physical miracles and spiritual miracles that took place through this whole thing. It's We're talking about the grizzly attack, but I can tell you that the grizzly attack pales to what God did when he showed up out there, and he gave my brother a special measure of courage to confront that bear. And when he, and I have to explain to your listeners also that, that moose area is some of the most inhospitable areas, swampy, frost heaves, down trees, very difficult terrain. He stepped up and just started charging with the the bear with the rifle. He couldn't shoot at it because it was was on top of me, it was in front of me, and he was afraid that that bullet would go through and hit me. But he confronted that bear and actually um, saved my life that way. Do you remember what happens as the bear eventually makes its way off into... uh into the woods, and now it's you and your brother, just the two of you, and you're bleeding profusely. Do you, do you remember the, the set of events that takes place next? Uh, yes, sir. Un- unfortunately, I remember every detail vividly. And uh, while my brother was firing his third shot and chasing the bear into the woods, which was now thrashing around, you know, we've got a wounded grizzly now, he runs to my side and... Uh, basically says, we've got to get out of here. I don't know if that thing's coming back. Unable to see, and I I said to her, I think I'm dying. It's still very much alive. Um, At this point, um, I can't see. All I can hear is literally the blood running off of me, 
pooling underneath me. And I turned to my brother from that point when I am out for the count, when Greg can no longer save the day, when Greg can no longer rise up and be number one, when Greg has no more strength left, it's exactly where God wanted me. And, and now it's time for him to step in with his brush, his palette, and begin to paint an unbelievable miracle, series of miracles, yeah. and unbelievable healing across me and my whole entire family. We could spend uh, an awful lot of time talking about a mile and a half track away from that attack down to the water. That, that alone is epic. <laughs> the, the fact that you and your brother were capable of doing that as you are, like you said, bleeding out and blinded and everything else that you're dealing with at that time. Hypothermia is setting in. You recognize now you're not going to be able to make the dozen mile or so ride in this boat down to safety. And so um, you kind of send him off in this boat. You give him the phone. And the idea is that if he can make it about halfway down, maybe he'll get cell service. Maybe he can make a call. Maybe safety will show up. As he's getting ready to go on the boat, what, what happens next? The decision is made that I will not survive the 14-mile boat ride. I'm covered in blood. I'm soaked as if I had just jumped in a swimming pool. There is uh, white caps. Not big ones, but foot, foot and a half white caps. The wind is picking up. It's starting to get dark. And so we make a decision that we're going to lay me down and we're going to put the, uh, some jackets over me. We're going to prop some jackets up. He, he brings me my rifle looking up the beach where the bear would possibly come from if it was tracking us. And he was going to leave me on the beach and beat feet to go try and find cell phone service. But as God would have it, and uh, he knew I didn't want to be alone. Um, there was three fishermen, as I always say, that uh, God loves fishermen. They showed up, and another miracle takes place there in, in them being able to change the whole course of uh, me kind of spiraling down towards what I figured um, I was going I was going to die. You know, I think sometimes we underrate events like that. You are It's not like you're at some popular lake and the, uh, the post is just around the corner at the dock. You're in the middle of nowhere, away from the middle of nowhere, 14 miles upstream from the middle of nowhere, and fishermen show up at this moment in time. Uh, I, I think it is nothing but a miracle that this happens, and we're going to truncate the story a little bit. But the helicopters come. They life flight you out. The finest surgeons in the world are there to greet you at the ER. But before all that happens, as you're being loaded onto the helicopter, you you shared four words with your brother that were the exact same four words I shared with my brother when I was able to speak again after being burned. Because uh, for those who do not know my story, my brother is the one who saved my life by putting out the flames. So after months of recovery, I was finally able to see Jim, finally able to express gratitude in the words I said to him were, thanks for saving me. Thanks for saving me. And so what I read in your own book, that as you're being unloaded onto this helicopter, uh, the words you spoke lovingly to your brother, Greg, thanks for saving me. It's an incredible thing. And as emotional as I got in reading that, for me, the next time when I almost cried reading your book was the call that you had to make before you went to surgery. Uh, it just broke me, man. I mean, I think any of us who have loved anyone more than they love themselves recognize when we do anything that may cause someone else pain, the tears in them that we know we may inflict are uh, much more painful in us before that call goes up on. You call your wife, Rhea, 
talk about uh, the, the emotion you had before hitting send on that call and what you said to her. If you can imagine when you are at that point where you are relying so much, you don't know what's going to happen. You don't know whether you're going to survive. It's on my mind. The Lord delivers a thought that my family doesn't even know what's happened yet. And they're getting ready to roll me into surgery for six and a half hours of reconstructive surgery. I say, stop. I'm not going anywhere until I talk to my wife. He said, no, you got to go. I'm like, I'm not going into surgery unless I talk to my wife. I have to talk to my wife. And my brother's like, he comes in, he's like, where's your phone? I said, it's in the stuff that they cut off of me. And so he runs and shoves it in between the doctors and nurses, and I'm able to make that phone call. I needed her to hear my voice before because I didn't know what was going to happen. I needed her to hear my voice and for me to be able to say that I love you. Late in the evening, as you're calling her, you're waking her up. She's groggy-eyed, half asleep. She hears your voice. It's been a while since she's heard it. And then you you share what happened, and you share the sentence, I love you. Yes. It's a moment she is, she's thinking I'm calling with, with success. She's been waiting for it. Um, she's wondering why it's so late. Um, but she knows how, you know, we're remote, and, and at times it takes times to be able to find those places where you can communicate. She was crying and, and she was obviously brokenhearted and worried about me. But hearing my voice, I knew that the Lord would use that to comfort her. And um, her immediate thought in, in getting off that phone call as I told her, I, I have to go into surgery, I'm going to surgery right now, was to call our church. And, and she went to work in, in getting a prayer group, prayer chain together. And she knew where survival rested and that was in the Lord's hands. She's just an amazing, amazing woman. She's taught me so much. Greg, what what has this experience of being attacked and being completely broken at the end of yourself taught you about life? Well, it's taught me about, as far as myself, when you look into the, the face of death, that the world gets really small and gets really refined. And it was another gift from God. He He really gives you the ability to understand what's important in life. And for so long, I had traded treasure for trash, meaning that in a a sense, I almost had abandoned my family with my heart because I was so busy trying to justify Greg that I never was able to give myself even remotely, completely to them in relationship, in love, in engagement. And what has changed for me is those things are no longer those accolades, those achievements, they no longer drive me. They no longer complete me. What completes me is deep, deep relationship with my wife, my family, and most importantly, my dad and the Lord. I have been able to come to a point where I can love myself because they always have loved me. It was the lie I told myself that killed my heart for a very, very long time. The Lord resurrected my heart to be able to love myself in a very healthy way and to be able to receive the Lord's love and, most importantly, to understand how my dad really, really felt about me because he never knew. I never told him. I never told him about how how deep the wound and the hurt the hurt was 
Greg, when you pour your heart into a book and when you travel around the circuit like you were doing right now, sharing this experience, sharing what you learned, what you went through and what it taught you, what, what are you hoping that your readers and that your audience and that the viewers receive from this message? Don't wait another second to understand what I have found out where real purpose, fulfillment, and joy in this life rests in deep, intimate relationships with the Lord Jesus Christ, with your wife, with your kids, with your family, because that foundation is what we were originally created for and under. And that is when we're seeking to do all these other things, there is nothing wrong with that. Mm-hmm. But when you doubt that foundation, that's where it begins to take on a picture of self and of selfishness and of trying to get stuff that is it belongs in those deep relationships. So I'm not saying that you can't accomplish those things, but that foundation is why I wrote it. I want to walk it out with everyone out there, and I'm still walking it out. But there is freedom. There is overwhelming joy when you press into that pain, when you find your your band of brothers or your, your circle of people that you can trust and share those wounds and be able to journal about it and become transparent about it. It is freeing. And that is the purpose and the message that I'm carrying forward. Greg, you have a worthy story and you've created a beautiful book. It's called Wild Awakening, How a Raging Grizzly healed my wounded heart. I read it. I loved it. I enjoyed it. I recommend it. And now, Greg, I'm going to guide you through what we call the Live Inspired Seven. These are seven questions that tether all of our guests together. Uh, We've been honored to have you on our show, and now I want to make sure that you are fully engaged with the questions and answers of this show. So question number one from the Live Inspired Seven. Greg Matthews, what is the best book you've ever read? Mm, I would have to say other than the Bible, of course, I would have to say it was The Shack. The Shack had a deep impact on my brother's, Shane's life, not the one that was with me in Alaska, but he had some, some deep doubt, and the Lord used that book. And the way that him and I describe it is if the Bible is God's Word in black and white, The Shack is where God gets a 64 pack of (laughs) colored crayons and begins to color in between the lines. So So that's why The Shack is my favorite book. We had William Paul Young on our show, gosh, about a year and a half ago. And as powerful as the book is, that dude is even more impressive. He just wrote about his heart, and it came out in the form of The Shack. But uh, for those who haven't read the book, check it out. It's called The Shack. And for those who haven't heard that interview— Go ahead and page through previous interviews, find William Paul Young, and be blown away by this packet of crayons that he colors uh, that he colors with. Mm. So great answer. What is one positive characteristic, one trait that you possessed as a child that you wish you exhibited as brilliantly and as brightly today? I have always been one with a, with a huge heart, likes to see people happy and joyful. And I think because of the wounding that I experienced, that I was never ever to give my whole heart as a kid growing up to whether it be my family or my friends. And, and it took on, you know, kind of that selfish mode. And so it would, it would have been obviously to not have that wounding and being able to share the wonderful heart that, that God has given me. And I give him the credit for all of that, sir. 
Greg, if your home caught fire and all living things are already out and you have an opportunity to run in grabbing one item, what's the one item you would run back into that house and grab? You and I have, uh, as, I've, as I've learned, you and I have a lot of things in common. I've been to some devastating fires. I have heard what is what we term in the fire service is, is hearing the big dog bark, meaning the, the wolf when people don't understand about the vapors mm-hmm. that, that proceed out of, a, out of gasoline and have seen people devastated like your story, sir. And so understanding something about the fire service, I have to say the the thing that I would go back and would die doing getting them out is I would go after my family. <laughs> that is where I would go to. That's um, um, just my heart of protection and now my heart of love and commitment to them. It would be I'd go back. That would be the one thing. And if it, if that didn't count for one thing, I'd grab them all. <laughs> And duct tape them together so it would be one thing and drag them oh, out. Oh, I have every sure. confidence you would figure out a way to get them all out. I've, uh, I've seen you in action. Greg, if you could sit on a bench overlooking a beach on a gorgeous day and have a long conversation with anyone, living or dead, who would you want to have that nice long visit with? Oh, that's, a, that's an easy one, sir. With my Lord and Savior, the King of Kings, Jesus Christ. And then just tell him how deeply grateful I am that he knitted me together and that he saved a, a very broken-hearted little boy. Mm. And I would just like to give him a hug. I think you're going to get a hug back. What is the best advice you've ever received? The first thing that comes to mind was from a couple that had been married for probably 50 years. Basically what they said is don't sweat the small stuff. It's something that it's hard to apply because day in and day out, it's those little things that, that build up and, and tend to cause division at different times with with your spouse, but that has been the most useful one. And then it may seem kind of silly, but uh, Tim McGraw wrote a, a song called Live Like You Were Dying. Mm-hmm. And after that grizzly attack, I can tell you right now, things have changed and I am doing my best and walking it out. Well, the gift of fire or grizzlies or a diagnosis is it wakes you up to the truth that you are dying. Whether you're living or not, that's your choice. But each one of us, uh, we are dying. And so I think it's very cool that you would quote McGraw and live those words through your life. Two more questions. What would you tell your 20-year-old self, Greg? Your father in heaven loves you. Your dad loves you. He thinks the world of you. And just rest and enjoy that love and know that you do not have to do a single thing from this point to be basked in that love and to know that you are worthy of love. I know that there's people that understand wounding and and how burdensome that can be to carry it, and nobody knows, and you're looking in the mirror and you want to scream because you can't let it out, but you look at it in the mirror every day. And it was a difficult burden, and I would just tell myself, it's okay to love Greg. There is stuff that's lovable in you, and it took me a long time to to understand that. Well, Greg Matthews... uh loved child and lovable man. It has been said that all great people can have their lives summed up in one sentence. How would you want your one sentence to read? That Greg Matthews did everything that he could to be the father and the husband that Jesus Christ created him to be. That would fulfill my life. That would be my one statement. And though at 53 now, 
I've I've missed a lot of time. I'm for the rest of my life. I'm going to uh, I'm going to pursue that. Well, Greg Matthews, you have been a pleasure to read about, to listen about, to meet now, and to consider a dear friend. So I want to thank you for sharing your experience, sharing your heart, sharing your faith, sharing your life, your mistakes, and what it means for the rest of us. You're very welcome. It has been truly an honor and a privilege to talk with you and all your listeners. I just I, I just want everyone to know that it doesn't have to be a huge wound from a father wound or anything like that. You only know what's impacted your heart and what's wounded you and what's paralyzed you in areas. So this is for all of you. There is purpose, fulfillment, and joy behind pressing into that pain. And it takes a, a, a special courage that God can give you, but I guarantee that you will live a fulfilled life once you press into that and you invest in those relationships. So thank you for having me. My friends, the book is called Wild Awakening, How a Raging Grizzly Bear Healed My Wounded Heart. It's by Greg Matthews. It's a phenomenal book by a phenomenal guy. So uh, for this time and until next time, this is your day. Live it as if you were dying and live inspired. My friends, thank you so much for listening to today's Live Inspire podcast. I hope you share with your friends, your family, your colleagues, your letter carrier, your dog walker, that stranger seated next to you on the bus ride, that lady working out right next to you, the guy checking out in front of you. In other words, share with everyone that you're listening and that you are subscribing to the Live Inspired podcast together as a live-inspired community. And yes, that includes you. You are part of this community. Together, we can change the world. I can't wait to share with you the next episode.